the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Robert Spencer is the author of well over a dozen books, including the New York Times bestsellers The Truth About Muhammad, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, The Critical Quran, explained from key Islamic commentaries and contemporary historical research, and The Empire of God, How the Byzantines Saved Civilization. Mr. Spencer has led seminars on Islam and jihad for the United States Central Command, the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, the FBI, and the Joint Terrorism Task Force. He now serves as the director of Jihad Watch, a program of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. Hi, Mr. Spencer, and welcome to Timeless. Thank you. Good to be here. I have to tell you, I am such a fan of your books, and I'm reading right now the critical Quran, which is so helpful in understanding Islam. And you, I just want to shout it out to the audience because, you know, we hear a lot about Islam talked these days by alleged experts, but we often don't hear them ever cite passages in the Quran. And so there's no better way to actually learn about the religion than reading the text and uh, your commentary on it. So I just wanted to, to, again, shout that out and thank you for all of the fantastic books that you've written, of which I've been the beneficiary. So, so let's start off this interview by going to 7th century Saudi Arabia when the Prophet Muhammad was born. Can you take us from there in the origins of Islam and talk a bit about its spread in that century? Yeah, absolutely. In the first place, just a, a small note, Saudi Arabia arises much later, but there was Arabia. Right. And Arabia is where Muhammad, according to Islamic tradition, is uh, supposed to have been born in the year 570. And then in the 7th century, in the year 610, when he was 40 years old, he was approached by, according to Islamic tradition, once again, the angel Gabriel, who told him to recite. And over the next 23 years, gave him the Quran to recite, and that is the holy book of Islam. And so that was collected after his death in 632, and it is the normative guide for Islamic belief and behavior to this day. My understanding is that the Quran is believed to have been the true revelation of God. In other words, that the Old Testament and the New Testament got it wrong. And now this is the final revelation from God to the final prophet, Muhammad. And it is the real, true work of God, not the way that the Old Testament and New Testament subverted the, the word of God. Is that correct? Yeah, that's basically it. The idea is that the uh, prophets that we know of in the Judeo-Christian tradition were all actually Muslims. Abraham was a Muslim. Moses was a Muslim. David, Solomon, even John the Baptist and Jesus 
We're all Muslims. So the they taught Islam and they got various books that Allah gave them that taught Islam. But then their followers twisted the teachings of those books in order to create what we know of today as Judaism and Christianity. So according to mainstream Islam, Judaism and Christianity are illegitimate variants on the original Islam taught by the prophets. And the true correct teaching of all the prophets is encapsulated in the final revelation, the Quran. We have here, I, I uh, heard this in a speech that you gave, you cited chapter 5, verse 65. Had the people of the book, i.e. Jews and Christians, obeyed their scriptures and been righteous, they would be right in my eyes. This is Allah speaking, correct? And and he speaks yeah. in the third or the first person uh, plural, we, he says. Yes, that's right. Even though they reject the Trinity and Allah is an absolute unity, he does use the royal we in the Quran. And the idea of that passage is that he's saying that the Jews and Christians, if they adhere to the original revelations that Moses and Jesus received, that is the Torah and the gospel, the Torah and the Injil, as they're called in the Quran, then they would be all right. They would be guided because those things teach Islam. The problem is that you can't find, according to Islam, the original Torah and gospel. They have been adulterated and changed and transformed into what we know of as the Old Testament and the New Testament, which do not teach Islam, and thus they must be rejected. I see. So how would you identify the central call of Islam? You know, to of course, there are many calls in, in each religion that, that the practicing group has. But if I had to synopsize it for Judaism, for instance, I would say that Jews are believe themselves to be the chosen people to bring the, the word of God, the Torah to everyone. In Christianity, the central call for Christians is to follow Christ, to, to serve and to live a life as Christ did. What is that for Islam? There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And that's basically it that if you affirm that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet and you accept the Quran as the word of God, then you're a Muslim and you are on the right path, the straight path, as it's called, that will lead you to paradise. You have to do good works and so on, as you do in, 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 in all religions in one way or another. But that's basically all. Uh, there is no idea of... Uh, sacrifice or redemption or any of the other things that we're familiar with in the uh, Jewish and Christian traditions. It's just a matter of affirming that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah and there's no other God. So like Christianity, there's a heaven and hell. Believers go to heaven, whereas infidels or, or those who don't believe go to hell. And is there? there's also a call, of course, to proselytize in Islam. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Now, it's a little different from proselytizing in Christianity. In Christianity, people might preach to you, and then if you say, no, I'm not going to convert, then they ought to, at very least, leave you alone. Whereas in Islam, there's a tradition of Muhammad where he says, first, invite the unbelievers to accept Islam. If they refuse, then invite them to pay the jizya, which is a tax specified in the Quran for the unbelievers who submit to the hegemony of the Muslims and accept a second-class inferior status. And if they reject that, 
also, then seek Allah's help and fight them. So in short, the, the choices for non-Muslims are conversion, submission, or death. Okay, so in, in Christianity, they believe that if you don't believe, you'll go to hell, but there is no obligation to forcefully proselytize people on earth. I mean, of course, there's, there's encouragement to proselytize, but it doesn't involve force. Whereas you're saying in Islam, the Quran instructs a few steps, but the, the culminating or ultimate step is if someone is not submitting or converting, then by force, you proselytize them. Well, by force, you subjugate them. Okay. You don't necessarily convert them to Islam, but you make them pay the tax. You make them submit. And so even in modern days, the Islamic State, ISIS, they collected the tax from non-Muslims in Syria. And Hamas has said that once it consolidates its power, it will collect the jizya as well. Okay, so when we're speaking, I use the term by force. There are two, you know, interpretations, or there are two ways. By force in, in the sense of you force someone to pay a tax, and also by force as in perhaps committing violence against them. Is there a call to commit violence against those who do not believe in Islam, oh, in the Quran? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There is, in the first place, the uh, thrice repeated, kill them wherever you find them, which is in chapter 2, verse 191, chapter 4, verse 89, and then chapter 9, verse 5 says, kill the idolaters wherever you find them. Then in chapter 47, verse 4, it says, when you meet the unbelievers, strike the necks. Then there are a number of other passages that say to strike terror in the enemies of Allah, to fight the enemies of Allah. And then chapter 8, verse 39 says, fight them until persecution is no more and religion is all for Allah. And that makes it clear that the fight involved is not just defensive, that is against persecution, but against all unbelievers until religion is all for Allah. And so you have to keep fighting people as long as there are non-Muslims. And this is physical warfare, as is very clear from chapter 8, verse 41, which says that you have to give a fifth of the spoils of war to Muhammad. Obviously, there aren't spoils of war when you're talking about a spiritual struggle. If you're praying and that's the warfare that you're engaged in, there are no spoils of war. And thus, that is obviously not what the Quran is referring to. Are there any counterparts in the Old Testament or the New Testament to this call in the Quran to proselytize by force? Are there are there any passages that you can point to in any of the preceding texts which may sound like the ones you just cited in the Quran? There's nothing like this in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are passages where the Israelites are commanded to make war against various groups and to kill all of them and so on. And Islamic apologists like to point to those passages to say, see, you're upset about Islamic jihad warfare, but the Jewish and Christian traditions teach exactly the same thing. Well, actually, they don't, because those were localized commands for a particular group of people under particular circumstances. There is nothing in the Jewish or Christian scriptures in the way of a universal declaration of war against all non-believers or a command to the believers to wage war on an indefinite basis against the non-believers. But there is that kind of teaching in the Quran. And this is what makes Islam such a difficulty for non-Muslims around the world and why there is conflict between Muslims and non-Muslims everywhere where they live together. 
What is an example in the Old Testament of the fa- of a context directed call to kill a certain group? Well, for example, you have the uh, killing of the Amalekites. The Amalekites are an ancient people that have died out. There aren't any Amalekites today. And so there is a, ca- a command in the Old Testament that the Israelites should hunt down and kill the Amalekites because the Amalekites are irredeemably evil and uh, even the children and so on. And this is something that is often invoked today to make the claim that Judaism and Christianity, since this is part of the Christian Bible as well, are just as violent or equally capable of being violent as the uh, teachings of Islam. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu actually aided this case recently, inadvertently, by referring to this passage when he was calling upon Israelis to fight Hamas in the wake of the October 7th massacres. The thing is, though, that Netanyahu was referring to it metaphorically in terms of the Amalekites standing for the people who are evil who need to be combated. And he was not calling, obviously, for the genocide of the Gazans or anybody else. The fact is that this was, in historical context, only a command for this particular group, referring to this particular group. Now, that in itself creates all sorts of theological questions and problems for Jews and Christians because it it is God commanding killing and so on, and could that be justified and the various questions. But one thing is absolutely certain, and that is that it does not apply to today's world in any way. And there aren't any Jewish or Christian groups saying so. Even Benjamin Netanyahu invoking this passage does not constitute a religious authority saying that there are Jews and Christians who have some obligation to wage war. Nowadays, there are no such religious authorities, whereas there are many in Islam. In addition to the call to proselytize, in addition to the central affirmation of faith, isn't it called the Shahada, the the affirmation? Yes, yes that there's yes. only one God. And Muhammad is his prophet. Right. Okay, so we have the proselytizing element. We have the adherence to the Shahada. I want to understand some more of the obligations or the tenets of the Muslim faith. Sharia law, I can imagine, is a, perhaps one of the most central in addition to those two. What is Sharia law? Sharia is considered to be the law of Allah. And so ordinarily, when people answer your question, they would talk about the five pillars of Islam as they are known. And that is, you know, the confession of faith, the fasting, the pilgrimage, and so on. The uh, fact is, though, that that's really just a small part of the obligations that Muslims have. And Sharia encapsulates the vast, the bulk of them. It's all considered to be commanded by Allah. And that's where you find, for example, the uh, obligation to jihad warfare, the food laws in terms painting from pork and alcohol and so on. And, excuse me, the rules governing, for example, the treatment of women, the allowance for the beating of women, the call for the killing of people who leave Islam, and for those who are considered to be heretics. It's all laid out in Islamic law, Islamic law being based on the Quran and the traditions of Muhammad. 
Where are the calls in the Quran to beat and subjugate women? Well, the primary one is chapter 4, verse 34, which says that good women are obedient. And as for those from whom you fear disobedience, note that it doesn't say those who are disobedient, just those you're afraid might be. Those from whom you fear disobedience, give them a warning, send them to separate beds, and beat them. So it's a three-stage process. First, you give them the warning. Second, you send them away. And third, you beat them. And so in Islamic tradition, you will, all, you will find many uh, supports for this passage. For example, there is at one point Aisha, the child bride of Muhammad, saying, I have not seen women suffer like the believing women suffer. And she even says that Muhammad at one point got annoyed with her. And she says, he struck me on the chest, which caused me pain. So this is something hallowed not only in the Quran, but by Muhammad's example, which is the supreme example of conduct. So when you go into Sharia adherent countries, and even countries that are just Muslim majority with a Sharia-based culture, but not full adherence to Sharia in the legal code, you find broad tolerance for uh, domestic violence against women because it's allowed in the Quran. It's taken for granted. Um, You know... I don't know if you know about the movies, The Stoning of Soraya M., which was about a true story, a woman who was stoned to death in Iran. And the there was a movie made about it a few years ago. And, of course, they couldn't film in Iran. They filmed in Jordan. And when they filmed in Jordan, they did a scene out on the street with Jordanian extras. Uh, and the guy is beating Soraya, the woman who ultimately gets stoned to death, and he's beating her as they go down the street. And spontaneously, without being told to do so, the Jordanian extras were cheering him on and saying, yeah, she must have deserved it. Go ahead, pour it on, because this is culturally acceptable in in, in Islamic countries. So Sharia law is, you're saying, religious law that also kind of bleeds into what we would call what what we in America would call secular law, that is, you know, proceedings in divorce court, inheritance. So Sharia law kind of encapsulates, excuse me, all of that. Yes, absolutely. There's no distinction in Islam between the religious and the political. We have the big distinction in the West that goes back to the foundations of Christianity and Jesus saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. There is no such distinction in Islam. And so uh, the political imperative, for example, to destroy Israel nowadays is based on Islamic principles and particularly the Quran saying, drive them out from where they drove you out in chapter 2, verse 191, even though the Israelis did not actually drive the Arabs out of the area, that's a historical myth. It's what they're told, and that triggers this divine command as being an imperative for the Muslims there to fight nowadays to drive out the Israelis. It's a religious fight and a political fight all rolled into one. In addition to the subjugation of women, what are elements of Sharia law? Well, there are many elements of Sharia law. It really actually covers every aspect of life. There isn't a single thing that you can think of of doing as a human being that doesn't have Sharia laws to cover how to do it. And so, for example, 
there's a law that you should uh, not be facing Mecca when in the bathroom. And so the bathrooms in the Islamic world do not face Mecca because that would be disrespectful, you see. And every last detail of human existence, in other words, is covered. There really isn't a single thing you could name that there isn't Sharia law for. Okay. So we, again, to summarize, we have the proselytizing obligation in Islam. We have the adherence to the Shahada. We have adherence to Sharia law and encompassed in that is the five pillars of faith, which include pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina, serving the poor, etc. Are there any other obligations? I mean, of course, there are probably thousands, but there are any other, you know, kind of big, broad brushstroke obligations that we ought to establish and acknowledge before we continue? Well, there are some that are contained in those things. You know, for example, uh, there are there is the Feast of Sacrifice, Eid al-Adha, which is a commemoration of Abraham almost sacrificing his son Ishmael in the in the uh, uh, Old Testament. It's Isaac, but in the Islamic tradition, it's Ishmael who is almost sacrificed, and then God stops him from sacrificing him. And uh, there is the large-scale sacrifice of animals on that day uh, to the extent that actually blood literally flows in the streets in some areas with thousands and tens of thousands of people sacrificing animals all at once. Um, But these kinds of things, really, that's getting a little bit into secondary obligations. I see. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, so let's go back to... 6th slash 7th century Arabia. I I called it Saudi Arabia. It's modern day Saudi Arabia, but uh, known, of course, then as Arabia. So the prophet Muhammad is born. He is visited by the angel Gabriel at the, it is believed, at the site of the Dome of the Rock in in Jerusalem. And the angel Gabriel reveals uh, the word of Allah to Muhammad. Now, how is the Quran written? Is it... Sorry, According to, to the traditional story, it was actually at, on a cave outside Mecca on Mount Hira that mm. Gabriel first appeared to Muhammad. And Muhammad was in Mecca for 12 years, the first 12 years of his uh, career as a prophet, getting revelations of the Quran on a periodic basis from Gabriel. And then Muhammad, in the year 622, moved to Medina, and the rest of the Quran is revealed there. There was a point 
right toward the end of his time in Mecca that Gabriel sent a winged white horse with a human head called Burak uh, that, that flew Muhammad to Jerusalem. And on, at, on, to the, on the Temple Mount, Muhammad ascended into paradise, met the other prophets who all greeted him as one of their fellow prophets. And then he met Allah and Allah told him to have his people pray 50 times a day. And he goes out and Moses says, no, that's too many. Go back in and bargain him down. And eventually he bargains him down to five prayers a day. And anyway, mm. then he flies back to Mecca. This is a legend, but it's the basis of the Islamic claim to Jerusalem to this day. So we understand the Old Testament and New Testament to be divinely inspired, but, but written by kind of a hodgepodge of people several centuries after the revelation of, of God. So do, do Muslims understand the word of the Quran to be written by Muhammad, obviously receiving the revelation through the angel Gabriel from Allah, or is it directly the words of Allah on a page? Yes, yeah, sorry. I realized in my last answer, I ignored your... That's fine. Okay. ...part of the Quran. The Quran is not actually like that. You know, in, in the Gospels you have, for example the gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark. And so there's the assumption that there is a human role in remembering and recording these things. But in Islam, there is no such idea. In the Quran, it's all the perfect word of Allah dictated through Gabriel to Muhammad. Muhammad, according to the traditions, was illiterate. Uh, I keep saying according to the traditions because the historical value of all this is actually very slight, but that's another story. The uh, fact is that Muslims believe that Muhammad received all these revelations, that he memorized them, that he would recite them, and then his followers would memorize them. There were various followers who had memorized various parts. Some of it, but not all of it, was written down. And then the... Uh, the Quran was collected 20 years after Muhammad died by the Caliph Uthman. So at the time of Muhammad, there were various people who had memorized portions of the Quran, but that's how it would happen. He would go into this kind of trance. He would receive the revelation. He would recite it. People would memorize it. Eventually they were all collected together. Okay. So Muhammad starts off in Mecca. Then you say that he went to Medina. How did Islam spread from there? My understanding is that, you know, Judaism and Christianity were kind of outsider religions. They existed for a long time until they had a state. Whereas with Islam, pretty much from the first century that it was founded, it started with a state and then from there really swept across uh, Northern Africa and Europe and the Middle East. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Muhammad became a political and military leader as well as a spiritual leader right at the time that he moved to Medina. Hmm. The According to the story, the people of Yathrib, which was Medina, they invited him in order to be their leader as a rival against the Meccans, who Muhammad was one of the Meccans, but they had rejected his prophetic status. And so he was happy to move to Medina where they accepted him. And then he became a political and military leader. After his death, the Arabs sweep out of Arabia into North Africa, the Middle East, Persia, 
and India and even attack the great power of the day, the Byzantine Empire, and they amass this large empire of their own at a very rapid clip uh, because of the weakness of the surrounding powers and the essential emptiness of much of the area involved. And so that is now today considered to be the heart of the Arab, the Islamic world. It was at that time almost all Christian. Persia, of course, was Zoroastrian and India was Hindu. And the religion of Islam was spread by force. The non-Muslims were conquered and then subjugated, made to pay the jizya, as we discussed before, and subjected to such deprivation and denial of their rights that many of them over time converted to Islam just to have a chance at a better life. What were the Crusades? The Crusades were an attempt to defend against all that because the uh, Muslims had actually conquered over half of what had been the Christian world. Mm -hmm. And so 450 years after the Arab invasion started, the Christians of Western Europe decided to try to fight back. And the Byzantine emperor actually appealed to the Pope for help, even though they were at odds because the Byzantine Empire was Orthodox. And of course, the Western Europeans were Roman Catholic. They asked for help against the jihadis and the, the Europeans sent the help, though they were the Crusaders. There was always friction between them and the Byzantines but they did manage to roll back the jihadis for a couple of hundred years in the Holy Land, the area that of modern-day Israel, and that prevented Europe from being overrun by the jihadis because for 200 years there were no jihadi incursions into Europe. Probably they would have conquered the whole thing if they had not been rolled back and distracted by the Crusaders at that time. So we really owe all of Western civilization to the Crusaders, although they are much maligned today. Okay, so for several centuries after the origin or the founding, however you want to call it, of Islam, the Islam spread for, as I said, North Africa, Europe, and the Middle East to, as you said, uh, Hindu, Zoroastrian, and Christian lands. When did things turn? When did Christendom, if you will, start to come back and reconquer the land that they had lost? Really didn't happen until the 17th century. Wow. uh, Primarily in the, the Ottoman Empire conquered the Byzantine Empire in 1453 and kept on going uh, and advancing into Eastern Europe and uh, took Hungary and was besieging Vienna in 1683. On September 11, 1683, they were on the verge of taking Vienna, which would be conquering Austria, moving into the heart of Europe. But then there was a group of Poles and others uh, under the leadership of the Polish king, Jan Sobieski. And on September, the early morning hours of September 12, 1683, they began to fight back, drove the Ottomans back from Vienna. This turned out to be the high watermark of the Ottoman advance into Europe. And uh, after that, the Ottoman Empire ultimately came to be known as the sick man of Europe, <clears throat> went into steep decline, and ultimately fell at the end of World War I. And this was the time of the, the height of Western power. 
but the jihad imperative never went away. And there were always Islamic groups determined once again to take the jihad to the West as they are doing now. What was life like for Jews and Christians and other religious minorities under the Ottoman Empire? It was very bad, very severe. Uh, they were subjected to all manner of discrimination and harassment such that their lives were essentially on a hair trigger. You never knew when Muslims might rampage and kill people, and then you had no recourse because they were the authorities. Uh, there's the famous story of the Jews of Morocco petitioning the local ruler at the end of the 19th century, which is getting into the modern period. But they are still asking him for permission to wear shoes because they were forbidden under the laws of the Dimma, the subjugation of the non-Muslims. They were forbidden to wear shoes as a sign of their humiliation and degraded status. And so they had to walk everywhere because they weren't allowed to ride horses either. And, of course, out in those days, the, without modern sewage systems, the road was full of the human waste, actually, that was thrown out from the buildings. And they had to walk through all of that. And so they asked permission to wear shoes, a very simple thing, and were denied because it, was, it would go against the Quranic command to ensure their subjugation and humiliation. What was life like for Muslim minorities in the Byzantine Empire or other Christian-ruled places? There was discrimination, there's no doubt. The Byzantine Empire was an avowedly Christian empire, and so it favored those who adhered to Orthodox Christianity over other groups. But there was nothing like the institutionalized discrimination of dimitude in the Christian world. And so people voted with their feet. Uh, it's noteworthy that at the beginning of the 20th century, there were 18 million Jews in the world, 17 million in Europe, and 1 million in the Islamic world. And it's the same thing with Muslim minorities. As a matter of fact, going back to the Crusader period, there were, crus there were jihadis at that time who complained because there were so many Muslims who preferred to live in the Crusader lands rather than live with the Muslims, because the Crusaders actually governed better and treated them better than their own fellow Muslims did in Muslim countries. Okay, so now we're up. It's amazing how fast we've gone through this history. But but again, you know, broad brushstrokes trying to get just a scaffolding of understanding, because a lot a lot of people don't even know about any of this, which is astounding, again, for, for how much we we hear people talk about Islam and claim to be experts on the history. Okay, so we're up until the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in 1919. Christendom had come back, sort of, you're saying, uh, between, you know, over the past a, a thousand years. But then what happened in 1919, when the Ottoman Empire collapsed? Was that a turning point at all in the Muslim world? Yeah. Uh, because the Ottoman Empire was the last caliphate. The caliph, caliph means successor, and the caliph is the successor of Muhammad as the military, political, and spiritual leader of the Muslims. So for the first time since the beginning of Islam, there's been no caliph. The secular Turks allowed the caliph to continue for a few years after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, but then he was deposed definitively in 1924. 
So for 99 years now, there's been no caliph. And the jihad groups, the modern-day jihad groups, are all dedicated to restoring the caliphate. That's why they exist. Al-Qaeda, Hamas, they all want to restore the caliphate because they consider that it's not really Islam without the political aspect, that Islam is essentially political, as I explained before, and so there ought to be a caliph. The Islamic State, ISIS, was it actually the new caliphate, declared a new caliphate. It didn't last. It only lasted for about three years. But during that time, they had thousands of Muslims coming from all over the world because they were so happy to see the caliphate restored. And in 1928, just four years after the caliphate was abolished, the Muslim Brotherhood was founded in Egypt in order to restore the caliphate. And all the major jihad groups of today, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all the rest, come from the Muslim Brotherhood. So during the time of the Ottoman Empire, you're saying that that, that was the, the caliph, or the caliphate, excuse me, at the time. But certainly there were other Muslim groups across the world who were not oh. under the Ottoman Empire. Just kind of, again, in, in broad brushstrokes, who were those groups and how did they consider themselves in the kind of patchwork of the Islamic world? The primary ones were the rulers of India, particularly the Mughals, who uh, were at odds with the Ottomans, fought the Ottomans at various points. Uh, and they did not make a claim to be a universal caliphate, but they also didn't accept the Ottoman claim to constitute that universal caliphate either. They uh, just went their own way. And there were some others also who did so, but ordinarily, generally, particularly in the Western world, the claim that the Ottomans were the legitimate embodiment of Sunni Islam as being the abode, the empire, the domains of the successor of Muhammad was generally accepted. And nowadays it's considered a grievance that the Islamic world is disunited that there are all these Muslim countries instead of a single caliphate. And that's what they want to restore. But even if they did restore it on a large scale, there would no doubt be, once again, other Muslim groups that would refuse to go along, just as there were during the Ottoman period. So you said that in 1928, the Muslim Brotherhood <clears throat> was founded to restore the caliphate, and that subsequent terrorist jihadist groups are intending to fulfill that same function. I do notice that many of the groups that we talk about today, um, Al-Qaeda, of course, being one of them, ISIS being another, were founded pretty recently. In other words, several decades after 1928. I mentioned in the introduction that um, Al-Qaeda was founded in 1988 and then uh, ISIL or ISIS, if you will, was founded in 2004. Why why were those groups founded then, so, so long after the Muslim Brotherhood was founded? They all come out of particular circumstances. Hmm. And so you have, in the case of al-Qaeda, it comes out of the effort in Afghanistan to fight first against the Soviets and then against the Americans. And so the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in the 1980s because they put a communist puppet there in charge, and then he was overthrown, and that's what triggered the invasion. And so Al-Qaeda grew out of the jihad against the Soviets to kick them out of the country and restore the Afghan sovereignty. 
the Islamic State or ISIS was actually Al Qaeda in Iraq fighting against the Americans. And Zarqawi was the Abu Musab Zukari was a uh, Zarqawi was a uh, Al Qaeda commander who was the head of Al Qaeda in Iraq. And he had an argument with Osama bin Laden because he wanted to start a caliphate in Iraq. And Osama bin Laden said, the Americans will topple it if you do that. And so Zarqawi was killed in 06, but Al-Qaeda in Iraq did ultimately try to establish that caliphate in Iraq, and that's ISIS. But, and Osama bin Laden turned out to be right. After three years, the Americans came and toppled it. But ISIS is still very much a force around the world. And so these groups, it's not as if they were sitting around and waiting. Uh, Osama bin Laden, as a matter of fact, had a long history himself of going to various jihadi hotspots over the years. And that's why he ended up in Afghanistan to found al-Qaeda. And he founded it with a Saudi who was also there to wage jihad. And so uh, there were jihadis who had traveled all around the world to various places where jihad was being waged. And out of those conflicts, some of these groups emerged. Hmm. So each of these groups, you're saying, is they come out of a certain context, but they're all intending to restore the caliphate. And essentially they're divided because they think they're doing the best job at restoring the true caliphate. Is that right? Not always. Usually they're divided just on the basis of the fact that they're in a particular region. I see. Like a lot of times you're going to hear, I mean, there is some of both. Like take, for example, Afghanistan. Uh, Many times you hear people say the difference between Taliban and ISIS is that the Taliban is just a a resistance movement or a nationalistic movement for the Afghans, whereas ISIS wants the whole world. Well, the Taliban actually had several of its spokesmen when they took Kabul in August 2021 say, this is just the beginning and now we're going to export the jihad outside of Afghanistan. So it's, that's not really a difference. The difference is indeed that ISIS comes out of Iraq and the Taliban comes out of Afghanistan. And so there's in the first place a regional rivalry and a rivalry in terms of the leadership, you know, who, who gets to be in charge of the thing. Uh, but ultimately, yes, they do have the same goals to subjugate the world under the hegemony of Islamic law. I have heard a lot of people say that the radical terrorist jihadist groups have really come in the past century because of the loss of power in the Islamic world and because of the way that the West has treated Islamic countries or groups. And first, I want to ask you specifically about the second part. To what extent do you assess the validity of that statement? How much has the the West's treatment of Islamic groups, specifically, you know, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and kind of drawing up the boundaries of the Middle East, to what extent, in your judgment, has that fueled or contributed to the rise of jihadism? A hundred percent and zero percent at the same Interesting. time. Uh, this is the deal. In, in, in Islam... There is offensive jihad and defensive jihad. Offensive jihad is waging war against somebody who's just minding his own business to impose Islamic law over him. Defensive jihad 
is obviously defense when an Islamic land is attacked. Offensive jihad is a general obligation on the whole community, which means if you're doing it, I don't have to worry about it because it's being done. But defensive jihad is a personal obligation on every individual Muslim. Now, every individual Muslim might not take it up, but it is an obligation according to Islamic law. Now, the thing about it is that in the absence of a caliph, there's no offensive jihad. Only the caliph can call offensive jihad. So every every jihad since 1924 has been defensive. And so this means that people like Osama bin Laden and others, they draw up these long lists of grievances because that justifies their defensive jihad. But Americans would be foolish to think, oh, if we just give them what they want and redress all these grievances, then there will be peace. No, there will just be more grievances because the grievances are just a pretext to justify the jihad. And if those grievances are satisfied, others will come along. It's kind of a cliffhanger that we may have to end on. I, I, I have so many questions for you. We'll have to do a part two, but I, I think this has been, been very good in establishing some of the, the history and the, and the origins. Now we're in a moment where we are seeing, again, just how unignorable the state of the jihadist Muslim world is. Do you think that Hamas is the biggest threat to Western civilization and to Israel, or are there some other groups or a larger kind of way of thinking that you might deem even more of a threat? Well, Hamas is the biggest threat to Israel immediately, but Hamas is just bankrolled by Iran, and Iran is the biggest threat to Israel. Iran is also likely the biggest threat to the United States because they have a great many operatives right now in the Biden administration. And even though that's been exposed, they haven't been removed. And Mm -hmm. nobody's even asking for them to be removed. And meanwhile, they're working for the best interests of this group where they are chanting death to America. And so, you know, I don't know what their calculus is in Washington, but it's certainly not the well-being of Americans that they have in mind. If any member of my audience should start with one of your books to learn more and kind of get more of an understanding of, of this subject, which one would you point them to? Uh, probably the one you've got there, the critical Quran, because that of course is the yes. holy book of Islam. And that's a nuclear translation plus commentary to help you understand how these passages are, are indeed interpreted in mainstream Islam. I also want to say which I love that the the dedication of your book is the following offered with love to all the people of the world who love the Quran. You're very brave in your criticisms of the Quran and of um, many elements of the way that it's been interpreted. But I, I think I, it's important to make it clear that that is your dedication because there are so many people who practice this religion peacefully and with good intentions and who do love this this piece of work. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing. Uh, I know that there I, I uh, uh, have spoken to quite a few people from Somalia who seem to have the idea that uh, Islam invented being kind and charitable, and they say you know in our religion it's considered to be uh, uh, an obligation to be kind to. Uh, strangers and foreigners and travelers and so on. And this is a, it's not just Somalis. This is a very widespread idea. 
And uh, I think that it's important for non-Muslims to understand that even if the Quran teaches warfare against unbelievers, this doesn't make every Muslim a jihadi. There are many Muslims who consider that it just that Islam just means that they should be nice to people and more power to those folks. Robert Spencer, thank you so much for coming on to the show and thank you for all of the important work that you do. My gosh, I, I was saying in the introduction that you've written over a dozen books. It's probably some multiple of that. How many in total have you written? Well, the one there, Empire of God, that's my new one, and that's number 27. Wow. Okay, so almost almost close to three dozen. It's just amazing what you've done. Thank you very much. I hope we'll be able to do a part two and stay safe. Take care. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.